We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Right. Good evening. We are continuing on our Ezra and Nehemiah series. We're now looking at Nehemiah 7. So we're going to be camping out today, um, but we'll probably jump around a little bit as uh, Jordan read uh, some verses that we'll talk about later. Um, and just kind of a reminder of, of this cycle that we've been seeing. You saw it in the video the, that there's been this continual cycle of, of returns. And so we saw one return in the beginning of Ezra, another return in the middle of Ezra, one more with Nehemiah and the people coming with him. Then they rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the wall. Now we're to that final step, the restoration um, of the worship of the true God in Jerusalem. And if you notice, there's still a lot of Nehemiah left, right? We've completed the wall in chapter 6, but we still have until Nehemiah 13 to walk through the restoration of the people. Um, And for those that got the email this week, I, I mentioned one commentator said of Nehemiah, now that he's successfully rebuilt the wall, he has to turn his attention to the hearts of the people which is a much more difficult building project, amen? It's the people is what matter, but the people, it takes a lot of work. And so we're gonna be walking through for several more weeks up until December, looking at how Nehemiah with Ezra, we'll see Ezra pop into the story here in a little bit uh, in chapter eight, and how they will try to restore the worship here uh, at the end of Nehemiah. So just a reminder from last week, we had three main points. We looked at how the wall was completed. So completing the work was our first point. Continuing opposition. So even though Nehemiah finished this great work of God and everyone recognized that it was the work of God, there's still opposition. And we talked about how that's, how, that's often the way things are in the Christian life, right? Like you have some success, you get things going, but then you get hit by something. There's more opposition, more attacks, more temptations. And then we looked at that last little section, the beginning of chapter seven, where he puts up guards for the city. We need to lock down the city, secure it from this continued opposition and secure the work now that we've completed the wall. Okay, today we're gonna look now at uh, another new problem that he has. So last week was all about securing the city Um, from the opposition of Tobiah, from outside attacks, things like that. Today, we're going to look at filling the city. So we're going to see that there's a new problem that he has to face dealing with the people and a new way that he's going to go about doing that and that sort of thing. And because I'm an alliteration kind of guy and I'm not very creative, we've got five points that all start with P. So if you want to have a head start here, we're going to look at first the problem. What's the problem in Nehemiah 7, what is he needing to fix? Then we're going to look at his plan. How are we going to address the problem that we see in verse 4? Then we're going to see the people, a list of people that are coming. Then we're going to see, and, and make sure you, you get this, priests. There's going to be some question about some of the priests, and so they have to walk through that. And then provision. Now, all of this list, though, keep in mind, goes back to Ezra 2. And we'll talk about that. So he's looking back at Ezra 2 and the list that was earlier there in 
the thing. So everybody with me? We're going to fill the city. We're going to look at how is Nehemiah now with the buildings up, the temple up, the wall up. What's the next step? What's the ministry look like? How does he continue to build the city? So let's start with Nehemiah 7, verse 4. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few and the houses were not built. So what's the problem? We have an empty city, okay? We have a beautiful temple, we have a wall, but is that really the restoration of Jerusalem, the restoration of the worship, okay? An empty temple doesn't look good, right? And if Jerusalem is supposed to be the light to the nations, we have an issue. The city of David, the center of worship of Yahweh is empty. There aren't people living in the city. There's open spaces, some houses need to be built, there's a problem. We need to fill the city. Um, Kind of think like we've been blessed with beautiful facilities here, but if it was an empty building, there's no worship, right? You've got to have the people. And so that's what Nehemiah is going to set himself to do here. Jerusalem needs to be a light to the rest of the world. We need people. We need worshipers here. Um, And you, you've probably been to like city areas that have been abandoned and just kind of how eerie it is. Like, you, you, like if you go to certain parts of Detroit or if you went to New Orleans after Katrina and there's just huge open areas, like that's not communicating a thriving community. That's not communicating a, a city on, on a good standing, right? Um, one of the most creepy things I've ever been to is the Six Flags in New Orleans after Katrina. You know, it's, it's place that's supposed to be all about having fun, right? And getting away and all that stuff, but it's not working. There's no people. It's empty. It's eerie. We need to fix this. And a city that's empty is not attractive. A city that's empty has not been restored. A church that's empty isn't where worship is happening, right? We have to have the people. So what's he going to do? Let's look at the plan. Verse five, then God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles the officials, and the people to be enrolled by genealogies. Then I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up first in which I found the following record. So the plan is, let's get everybody together. Now let's find people to fill the city. Now where's a good place to go to find people to help restore the worship of the temple? Well, let's look at the people who came back to do that in the first place. Right, so he's going to go back to the list. This matches very closely with the list in Ezra 2. And he's going to try to find where the true worshipers, where the people that were dedicated to this mission, and how can I get them involved in helping restore Jerusalem? Okay, so a couple things to notice with this plan. First off, whose plan is it really? What does it say at the beginning of verse 5? Yeah, then God. All right, then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles. Yet again, and I hope you're catching this, Ezra and Nehemiah both are great leaders, but it's not because of anything in them necessarily, although they are gifted. It's that their willingness to follow God. Whose plan is this? Ultimately, it's God's. Nehemiah is just the avenue, the, the, the person carrying it out. But it's God's plan that he puts in Nehemiah's heart. Um, and that happens to us a lot, right? Sometimes when we're going around the Christian life and we feel a pull towards a certain direction or something clicks in our mind, that's God leading us. Are we willing to listen? Are we willing to follow him? Or do we have better plans, 
Right? I think we default to that, right? Like we come up with our own plans, our own agenda, our own thing. But Nehemiah has his heart in the right place. It's on God and his plans. And notice he can't do it alone, right? So God's got the plan. He tells Nehemiah, but Nehemiah is not going to do it by himself. He assembles nobles, officials, and the people, all right? If we want to have a successful church, if we want to have um, a godly church, you need all types, right? The church should not be a place where there's division. You need leaders. You need people. You need all different walks of life working together for the mission of God. And so he reaches out to these different groups, the nobles, the officials, and the people, <clears throat> to be enrolled by genealogies. And then he goes back to the book of the genealogy, that Ezra 2 passage. He wants to make sure that he knows which people have been dedicated to this mission from the beginning so that he knows which people can I count on to help me finish the work, right? And if you remember, it was a big deal when these guys left Persia. They had been living there for decades. They had had second and third generations, right? They had planted vineyards. They had built houses. They were safe. They were secure. So if they're going to leave, they have to give up everything, right? So are those the kind of people you can count on? The ones that have already sacrificed everything for the call, left their home, left their safe and secure homes back in Persia so they can help restore Jerusalem. And so it's not surprising that that's where he's going to go for new people, right? That's where we need to go to find people to help me finish this, this mission. He wants devoted, godly people to help restore the worship of Yahweh. Buildings are up, that's great. The walls are up, that's great. Now we got to fill it, okay? Now we need worship returned. Um, you see this in history a lot, right? Guys that have these visions for utopian cities. Um, and usually where they fall apart is it's not God's plan or it's not God's people, okay? Uh, you know, America, we have that, that tradition of the city on a hill, the, the Puritans trying to establish this perfect place. Ultimately, it falls apart. Um, a great example of, of one of these utopian cities uh, actually was here in Texas in 1855. I'm going to give you kind of an illustration of how not to do it, and then we'll talk about how Nehemiah did it well. Um, 1855, there was a French socialist named Victor Considerant. Okay, got to get your good French accent. Um, he had a perfect vision for a community that would be a utopian socialist community. We don't need God, all right? We're going to create this perfect community. And he brought 400 Frenchmen over here to Texas to establish uh, a socialist utopia, direct democracy. We're all going to share things in common, and we're all going to punt God. Not only that, he brought the wrong kind of people. He brought uh, watchmakers, weavers, brewers, people like that. But he didn't bring anyone that knew how to grow food. So if you're establishing a colony in the kind of the frontier area of Texas in 1855, what is he forgetting? You know, you, you, it's all around a terrible plan. So it's not surprising this settlement falls apart. Um, they get hit by crazy Texas weather. Okay, happens all the time. Uh, they have no food. They start to starve. They start to move away. And eventually the whole community falls apart. Then the city of Dallas buys it. This community is called La Reunion. 
Anybody know Reunion Tower? Okay. So if you ever wanted to know why they call it Reunion Tower or Reunion Arena, it was based on the land of this utopian socialist place. But it wasn't God's plan and it wasn't the right people. And so what happens? Within 30 years, it falls apart, right? I'm not saying go create a utopian place. That's not the point of the story. But Nehemiah wants to reestablish worship of God. So he needs to follow God's plan, use God's people, right? So we're going to see him do that. Um, And the dedicated to God, if you think about last week, he's already shown this pattern, right? When he needed people to help secure the city, when he needed good, solid leaders that could watch the walls and protect the people, he turned to in Jeremiah, uh, earlier in chapter 7, 7 7-2, I put Hananiah, my brother, and Hananiah, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem, why? For he was a faithful man and feared God more than any. Okay, we're not necessarily looking at skills. We're not necessarily looking at professions. What do we need to reestablish true worship? True worshipers, right? People that are dedicated, people that are faithful, people who fear God more than many. Okay, so we've looked at the problem. Now we've looked at the plan. Okay, God's plan using his people. So let's look at the people, all right? This long list of people. Uh, Verse six, and yet again, he's reading um, the list that he found, the book of genealogy that's connected to Ezra 2. These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles who Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, carried away and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city who came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Remiah, et cetera, so forth, okay? Um, couple things, all right? Couple things. First and foremost, this list of people, like I said earlier, what is their main qualification? What's the one that we're really looking for? Are they dedicated? God? Are they true worshipers of God? Are they here to see this thing through? Or are they guys like Tobiah that are just trying to take advantage of things? Are they people that are going to fall away? We want to fill Jerusalem with true worship and true worshipers. Um, other things, if you notice this list, Zerubbabel, that's a Persian name. That's a Babylonian name, all right? Um, Mordecai, okay, that's a Persian name. Uh, Bigvi, Bilshan, these are Persian names. So these are guys that had grown up in Persia and ended up with Persian names. So if they wanted to stay in their culture, they would stay in Persia. But for these guys, what matters more? The culture they grew up in or God? God. Despite the fact that their, their actual name and identity is Persian, they give that up for the sake of the worship of God. They are not defined by the names given to them. They're not defined by their upbringing. Despite having Persian names, they're dedicated to God and not the culture they grew up in. They leave that all behind. I think this is beautiful. In the church, your background, your upbringing, does that matter? Your culture you came from? No. Are you dedicated to God? No matter what your name is, what socioeconomic status, all of that, what matters is your devotion to God. It doesn't matter where you came from. What matters is who you're devoted to. And these guys are devoted to that. Other things that you notice from these first couple of verses, 
the first two names, Zerubbabel and Jeshua. And yet again, this is going back to Ezra 2. Zerubbabel, okay, you've heard his name. Where have you seen Zerubbabel before? What do you know about Zerubbabel? He's in the line of King David. If we want to restore the kingdom, if we want to restore true worship of God, you need someone in the line of David, right? You need someone continuing that. Zerubbabel was the grandson of King Jehoiakim. Uh, So you have the restoration of the Davidic line to the Jerusalem area. Then the second name, Jeshua, was the grandson of Israel's last high priest before the destruction of the temple. So we have the priest line and the king line. Notice they're first, mentioned first. Okay? Now, ultimately, full restoration of worship of God doesn't happen here, right? There's always still looking for the true Messiah, So what you're really looking for with these two guys is you're looking forward to when someone can come and be the true king and the true priest to establish true worship and true relationship with God, which is who? Jesus, right? That's what we're ultimately looking for. That's what we're going to need is a perfect king and a perfect priest. It's going to be a few years from what we're looking at, but that's what we're hoping for. And that's what we're looking back on, right? That's what we're placing our hope in is that perfect king and that perfect priest to restore the true worship of God. Um, so you got the people, You starting in verse 7, if you notice, it's just numbers. Like, despite the fact that uh, we're trying to find out who genealogy-wise, it's numbers, which I think is pretty profound. Because what's important is having your name written for everyone to remember what you did or following God with all your heart. These guys are being remembered in a way, but we don't know their names. We just know numbers and tribes and things like that through, you know, verse 7 on down to 38. We don't know much about who they were, what they did, their, their social economic background, their professions, all of those sort of things. But what we do know is they were dedicated to God And it mattered more to follow him than it was to get remembered, right? Um, And to be honest, that's most of us, right? Probably all of us. The vast majority of church history is people who are faithful but will never be remembered. The reason Christianity has grown so much is because of faithful people who will never be remembered, the sharing the gospel with your coworkers, the, the things that won't get you on a stage right here, you know, with big lights and things, that doesn't matter. It's, it's that faithful person in the pews. And so we have a long list of numbers of tribes of people who did that. They left their homes, left their Persian homes, came and now have reestablished Jerusalem. Those are the kind of guys that Nehemiah is gonna want to fill the city guys that are going to be willing to do the hard work and be dedicated for the mission and don't care about recognition, power, glory, those kind of things, right? Um, Verse 39, okay, so uh, kind of skipping through because it's it's a long text and we did cover most of these names back in Ezra 2. But in 39, you see another shift. Now you have a different set of people. You have a set of priests, So verse 39 through 42 is a list of priests. And yet again, not a lot of names because the focus is on faithfulness, not recognition, right? 
Uh, in addition to the people, you need leaders, you need spiritual needs met. You can't reestablish the worship of Yahweh um, without the priests, without spiritual leaders. Um, you need that. That's why we have pastors in the church. That's why we have elders in the church. You need leaders, but everyone is working together. Everyone gets recognized. And here the priests are actually after the people. Did y'all catch that? We all have an important role to play. We're all needed. We are all have some area of expertise, some way that we contribute. Um, so just like the vast majority of people in church history, the vast majority of pastors in church history are not recorded. There's not long lists of names of faithful guys in various places. It's pastoring and doing what God has gifted you to and called you to. That's the goal. That's what we're trying to do. And these men who probably were from higher class, probably had more wealth, more stability in Persia, they're giving up a lot, right? Not to diminish what everyone else has done, but they are giving up their homes and extended families in Persia. Starting in verse 43. Okay, so you get another group of people. These are all the guys that assist the priest in the worship, Okay. It takes more than just a senior pastor to run a church. You need guys to set up chairs. You need guys to lead worship. You need guys to count the money. You need guys to do all of those other aspects. And so we see that here in verse 43 down to 60. Verse 43, you get the Levites. The Levites are there, the priestly class to help the priest with the working of the temple, the different aspects, the sacrifices, the instruction of the people, about the law, and about God. Then in verse 44, you have the singers. Verse 45, you have the gatekeepers. You have the ushers, right? All the guys that welcome you in and help with the doors. You have the singers that lead in worship. All of these are needed. Then you have the temple servants in 46 on down to 60, okay? With numbers, yet again, no names, but faithful men who are willing to sacrifice, to do the work they're called to. Um, one of the numbers that kind of sticks out, I think we've mentioned this back in Ezra, but there's only 74 Levites. That's not near enough. And so if you remember in the first return, one of the big things Ezra has to do in the second return is recruit Levites. And it's for this reason, okay? We're shorthanded. We need people. And sometimes you have to go call and grab people, right, to take them uh, with you. So we have everything here in this list that we need to reestablish worship. We have priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, and then the people. So if Nehemiah wants to reestablish Jerusalem, he wants to fill it out, is this a good list to go to? We need to put these guys in the temple. We need to get worship restarted. We need to get things going. So let's pull from these dedicated people. Now, this is years later, so it's their sons and grandsons too, so that we can fill Jerusalem and see the worship restored. Now, the list, the book of genealogies mentions some problems that they have, starting in verse 61. There, this is what I said was the priests. There are some people that because of the um, exile to Babylon, they no longer could prove their lineage. They could no longer prove their connection to the priestly class. 
right? And so there was, there was question, are these people priests and Levites or are they something else? Uh, verse 61 of Nehemiah 7, these were they who came up from Tel Melea, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Emor. They could not show their father's houses or their descendants whether they were of Israel. And so he walks through different groups that weren't able to show their genealogy. Um, verse 64, these searched among their ancestral registration, but it could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. Now, this is kind of a, a weird passage that we, is, you know, looking back as New Testament believers, it's, it's hard to imagine this strict view on genealogy but remember, they have to make sure they get it right. And under Mosaic law, you have to be of the line of the Levites and the priests, right? You have to be able to trace your way back. Now, they've, they've opened up a way to kind of work through that, through the uh, Urim and Thurim in, in uh, 65. And so they would use that to figure out um, who's actually priests and who's or not, Okay. Um, they were very careful to make sure they could trace back the priests to their families. In Old Testament, genealogy and character were the requirements for leadership. So you had to have godly character and devotion, and you had to be of the right group, the right class. For our, us as New Testament believers, is that still true? Do you have to have the right character? Yeah, right? That's the main thing, okay? But do you have to be of a certain class or a certain family? No, that's the beauty, right? The engrafting of the Gentiles into the people of God. So now that there's no Jew nor Greek, male nor female, right? Slave nor free, we're all one big family. And so it's beautiful looking back that, that we no longer have to do this. We don't have to have you check your genealogy on the door in to make sure that you can preach up here or play drums or something like that. That's not what matters, right? The family of God has now been engrafted to the body of Christ and we're all equal. And so it's this beautiful picture. But for here, following the law, they have to make sure that the priests are of the right families, right? And the right character, okay? All right, so we've seen the problem. We've seen the plan. Now we've seen the list of people and then we've seen this question on priests, okay? Uh, last thing I'll say on the, on the question on priests, like the character issue, you know, we've, we've seen how Nehemiah's run into problems with noblemen or others um, that have compromised, right? Do y'all remember the intermarriage problem that Ezra had to face before we got to the book of Nehemiah where people were compromising with culture, mixing in with other groups, mixing in with other ideas? And so Nehemiah wants to make sure that whoever he brings into Jerusalem have the character and the right qualifications. Um, Paul warns us about the New Testament believer about this in 2 Timothy. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily, 2 Timothy 5.22, and thereby receive responsibility for the sins of others. Okay, we need leaders. But we want to take our time to make sure that they're the right ones. Right? And so Nehemiah, who needs help, who needs leaders, who needs people, is going to take the time and not lay hands quickly so that he can make sure it's the right people, okay? Um, the last P, provision. So starting in verse 66, the whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants, there were, who, of whom there were 7,337. They also had 245 male and female singers, uh, their horses were 736, their mules, their camels, their donkeys, 
So not only does you need all these people, but there's this great provision of God in helping restore the people of Jerusalem. So yet again, this is the first group coming back in Israel. Now Nehemiah is looking back and remembering that and remembering the sacrifice of these guys, that not only was it their bodies and their families, it was all of their provisions and wealth that they brought with them, right? The mules, the donkeys, the camels, etc. And then he goes on in verse 70. The governor gave to the treasury 100 a thousand gold drachmas, uh, 50 basins, 130 priest garments. So not only have these guys sacrificed their safe, secure home back in Persia, they've taken this long journey, they've given everything to the mission, now they're giving it to the temple. They're literally handing it over. They're not just risking it, but they're giving it up willingly. And so he goes through and he talks about others that do that. Okay, the treasury gets 200 uh, 20,000 gold drachmas, this is verse 71, and 2,200 silver minas. Uh, that which the rest of the people gave was, and so the leaders and the people are both sacrificing and giving generously from their wealth for the ministry. So yet again, Nehemiah is looking for people to fill Jerusalem. He's looking back at the first guys that came back. And these guys are dedicated. They risk their lives, risk their wealth, and then they give generously to the mission, right? And that's the kind of people we need. That's the kind of people we want. Ones that are wise, ones that are devoted, ones that will give not only their lives, but they're also their possessions. <clears throat> um, and then it ends in 73. Now the priests and the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their cities. Uh, in 73b, and when the seventh month came, the son of Israel were in their city. So this is kind of a concluding mark from Nehemiah after he gets to the end of the Ezra 2 uh, book of genealogy, okay? Um, so what did you notice here? Where are the people? Verse 73, they lived in their cities. So all the people have come back. They've spread out to different cities in, in Israel, Okay. Um, they were in the country. They weren't in Jerusalem proper, okay? Which kind of makes sense. Jerusalem was destroyed. It was kind of, it was a construction zone for this entire time, both Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, but now that the construction's done, what, do we, what does Nehemiah need to do with these people? What does he need to challenge them to do? Come in the city with me, right? Move in the city. Um, I know you enjoy your little country lifestyle, but we need to reestablish the worship of the temple. We need people. We need to fill out this city so that we can worship God. And so he's got to now challenge them to move in there, okay? So this last statement, 73b, moves from the historical list back to the narrative, and it's kind of a cliffhanger. Notice it doesn't say what happens. What's gonna happen? Are they gonna come back? Are they gonna follow God? What is going to help motivate them to come back if they ever do? Will they restore the city of Jerusalem to its glory, to the full worship of God, filling out the city? Or are they going to fail again? What do y'all think? You got to come back next week. Okay. We'll continue. Okay. Uh, just some concluding thoughts, just some uh, uh, applications, some things that I kind of put together. It's just some, some, some uh, thoughts, final thoughts. Uh, first, and I've 
said this several times, but it's okay to beat a dead horse. We do things not for the recognition of man, but of God. We will more than likely be serving in anonymity, and that's okay. It doesn't matter about our recognition, um, getting rewarded. What matters is being faithful to God. Um, This, of course, is contrast to the ancient world. If you think about the ancient world, it's all about getting your name on a building, right? You want to be famous. You want to be known. All the ancient kings would carve their names and their exploits on everything they could find, right? From sides of buildings to little stele, you know, that they'd put in um, pastures and things just to make sure no one forgot. But for the Christian, that's not why we do it, right? And that's why I had Jordan read that passage from Matthew at the beginning. Um, Matthew 6, 1 through 6, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Verse 3 of Matthew 6, But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't write it on a building, okay? It's okay to honor people by doing that, but don't seek that. That's not our goal, right? Uh, Verse four, Matthew six, so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. These people that we saw in Nehemiah seven, that was their attitude, okay? They didn't have this idea of getting their name on the side of a building, trying to gain attention for themselves, getting the glory for themselves. They just wanted to be faithful to God. Um, In Matthew 6, he continues and gives other examples. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you pray, go to your inner room, close your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. These guys that we don't have names for, this list, have they been rewarded for their faithfulness? Oh, yeah. And it's better than a name on the side of a building, right? It's better than the Corey Newman Memorial Library at whatever. It's, it's a far better reward. Verse 16 of Matthew 6, whatever you fast. So he gives another example. Do not put on a gloomy face as hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance and they will not be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. When you fast, anoint your head, wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done will reward you. So I think our goal is to be one of these guys in the list. It's okay to be a nameless person in the pew. It's okay that no one's going to remember us. What matters is faithfulness, right? Faithfulness to the mission and our goal. Um, Second kind of thought, you know, it's great that the temple's been rebuilt. It's great that the walls have been rebuilt. It's great that Jerusalem is starting to come back together, but without people, it doesn't matter. So buildings are good. Building up the people is better. And that's why we see the majority of these texts, although we normally think Ezra and Nehemiah, it's all about building. Yes, but if you look, most of the time it's been building people, not projects, right? That you need those buildings, you need those spaces, you need that area, but you can't stop there. We are called to go and make disciples, to build up the body of Christ, right? 
And so Nehemiah now moves on to ministry, okay? It's not like the wall was the end of his ministry. Now it's continuing. Let's build up the people. And so my challenge for you is to think through your ministry, your thoughts, how are you serving God? And how are you building up the body? How are you bringing in people, making disciples? Are you doing that for your own gain, for your own attention? Or are you doing that for God? What's your motivation? And then let's fill the city. Let's fill this church up with believers and new disciples. Amen? All right, let me pray for us. Remember, there's fellowship and food afterward. So I'm gonna pray for us. The band's gonna finish this out and then I'll see you in there for some pizza as we build up the fellowship and build up each other, right? Um, So Lord, just thank you for this text and this reminder of, of priorities and what's important. Uh, I pray that we've all been challenged, including myself, that why we do this is an attention. Why we do this is because we're devoted to you and we fear you more than any, Lord. Um, I pray that you're with us, you, that you give us a clear vision, a clear plan on how we can also participate in making disciples, that we can participate in filling the city with your disciples, Lord. And I pray you just give us wisdom. And Lord, I, thank, I pray for the food. Um, that as we move into some time of fellowship, uh, that you bless the food and bless this time as we as a body get together and enjoy fellowship in your name. Amen.